Well, it is Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. And I think the church calendar kind of helped us know how to prepare and how to preach. Originally, I was going to preach on Romans 14, the controversy, and then pastor was going to bring Revelation 17 on Easter Sunday. So fire and brimstone. We rethought things a little bit. I hope this will be more edifying, more profitable. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 4, please, this morning. Luke chapter 4. It is easy to open our Bibles, even today, and to make the Bibles about ourselves. We want to be a part of this story. We often want to be the main actors as we read the Bible. But it isn't fundamentally about us. The Bible isn't written about fundamentally you. There was a little acronym I heard when I was younger, the B-I-B-L-E. It was Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah. In a sense, that's right. The Bible is instructive. It helps us grow in righteousness and godliness. But God, uh, the Bible is a book about God. It's a book about the Lord. And we want to honor it in that way today. Can you imagine opening your favorite book, your favorite novel, watching your favorite series with the main actor completely missing? It'd be like trying to read The Hobbit without Bilbo Baggins, or maybe uh, watch the NFL without Tom Brady, as we almost had to do. It was just, uh, it wouldn't be right. Let's open to Luke chapter 4. And before we get into it, I want to remind us of something that Christ said at the end of this gospel, Luke chapter 24, he makes an astounding statement that everything that's been written in the Old Testament, the prophets, is about him, that he's at the center of it all. Jesus Christ is at the center of the scriptures. The scriptures are centered upon God and his own son, Jesus. If we aren't seeing Jesus in the text, we're missing something. We're not arriving at the place Christ would have us. So as we open to Luke's gospel, we can see this at work. Let, Let me read Verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he, Satan, led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they shall bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So as we open to Luke's gospel this morning, I hope to see Christ at the center of it all. Let me give you a little bit of surrounding context in the gospel of Luke, all right? In chapter one, you open up and you find the divine preparation for the Messiah to be born in real time and space. This is where the God-man invades, the God becomes flesh. In chapter two, we see the Christ child in extremely humble and dangerous settings as a baby, already being threatened by the worldly powers of the day. The God-man is being opposed. 
Luke chapter 3 then forecasts Jesus' role as standing not only on the earth next to sinners, but truly as the substitute for sinners. I believe in large part that's why Luke records Jesus being baptized in the Jordan. You ever wondered why that happens? Why is that recorded? I, I agree with Dale Ralph Davis. I think that's because Jesus is already standing in the place of sinners. He's doing something that he didn't have to do, but he's representing you and he's representing me. This was the purpose and goal of the earthly ministry of Christ, to stand in the place of sinners, but without sin. To succeed where humanity had failed, to succeed where you have failed, to succeed where I have failed. And Luke now shows us in chapter 4, Jesus to be a sufferer and a conqueror on our behalf. Luke actually presents Christ's temptation in three different aspects in order to prove him a conqueror for sinful man. In response, you must choose to trust and worship Jesus as your substitute. So we've already read the text. First, we must see Jesus' temptation as a reenactment of the temptation of Israel. A reenactment of the temptation of Israel. Now that might seem wordy and uh, maybe uncalled for, but so what do I mean? Well, careful readers of Luke chapter 4 will see an unmistakable parallel between Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel. Think about it this way. God led his children through a body of water, the Red Sea, in Exodus chapter 14, in a demonstration of his favor and his compassion for them against the pagan Egyptians. The next challenge to the Israelites, as soon as they crossed the Red Sea, was hunger. Not starvation, but hunger. This too occurred in a wilderness, a place where God alone would have to provide for them. He provided manna from heaven. This was all a test to see if they would be loyal to Yahweh. Okay, now let's think about Jesus Christ. Jesus initiated his own ministry by crossing a body of water. Not the Red Sea, but where he was baptized, in the Jordan with John the baptizer. He was then immediately led from the river into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Do you see the parallel between Jesus and Israel? However, and praise the Lord, his obedience would be true, unlike Israel's that, that failed. Remember Exodus chapter 19. The Hebrew people were meant to be a kingdom of priests. They were meant to have a ministry to the whole world, representing God to the world, and they failed. They couldn't keep their hearts stayed on the Lord. Therefore, Israel needs a substitute in a very real sense. So the temptation of Jesus is not happenstance. This is something that God ordained for us. The wilderness situation underscores this emptiness, the trial, the threat upon the human condition of Jesus. Physically, and I want us to catch this, Christ goes without food for 40 days. I think we've heard this story so many times, we don't let that, that fact sink in and hit us like it should. 40 days without food. The Son of God was literally on the verge of starving to death. Mark's account adds that there were wild beasts around Jesus, no doubt threatening him, no doubt looking for him to drop dead so that they could have lunch. But Jesus remains faithful. In quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 8, he recalls to mind the failure of the Hebrew nation and he replaces them. Where Jesus Christ spends 40 days, Israel had spent 40 years being tested. Jesus walked the path that Israel walked. This is amazing, and this just doesn't seem right to us. How can this be? Let me illustrate what I mean. The year was 1944 in Holland. American troops had been called upon to aid in the Dutch resistance against the Germans in the heat of the war. A particular sergeant of the 101st Airborne Division, Charles Dohan, 
was tasked as a footman to Captain Johnson, was his name. Well, fierce firefighting broke out with the Dutch and the German, and upon hearing that Johnson had been wounded, Dohan immediately rushed over to try to save the captain. Rushing Johnson to the nearest military hospital, the verdict wasn't good. Johnson looked like he was failing, and failing fast. The doctor actually looked at Johnson and said, I can't treat him. There are other patients who need help more than he does. I'm going to have to leave him. So Dohan did the only thing he could think of. He drew his revolver, and at gunpoint, he ordered the doctor to take care of his captain. It worked. The doctor's not going to argue with that. The doctor cares for the captain, fixes him, helps him, heals him. And upon his uh, correction, Dohan hands him his revolver and says, you can turn me in now. I've done what I have to do. It just doesn't seem right for that kind of rescue. Jesus did something that just doesn't seem right to us. He suffers, he agonizes upon earth when he is very God. So our first point, to truly worship Christ as our substitute, you must be grateful for how his ministry replaces that of Israel's. He is the one who suffered for 40 days and conquered. Where they were doomed to fail, he was doomed to, or destined to succeed. Only God's providence is sovereign enough to orchestrate such a stunning replacement. This shows that God is sovereign even over testing. I think we can step back and do a little application here. Do you ever view your temptations to sin as random or purposeless? Jesus didn't. He recognized them as from a loving father who was in control of every detail down to the 40 days. Does your testing appear to you to to have a mind of its own, threatening you, luring you, seducing you with no reprieve? Jesus didn't look at it that way. He remained constant, focused upon his Father. The Lord God is in charge of our life's tests this morning. Jesus trusted his Father, and so can we in a similar way. I love 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. God is in control even of the tests that he places in our path. Every detail, God is sovereign. We dare not forget that. So our first point, you see that Christ's situation was an important reenactment of the the Old Testament nation of Israel. Secondly, you must observe how Jesus faces the full aggression of Satan. Now we're going to get into the temptations, all right? Let's look at the first one, verses 3 and 4. Read them with me. And the devil said to him, If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus' response is another quote from Deuteronomy. So he's hearkening back to Israel. Jesus' loyalty to the Father in this temptation exceeds his own loyalty to his physical needs. Alluding to the words of God shows that there is more to life than the ebb and flow of physical existence. God's authority must be accepted even in our physical states. It's not that we claim that our physical needs are unimportant or shameful. God created them for our bounty, but yet the temptation is there for us to live by sight and not by faith. And when our bellies are hungry or when we feel like we have something pressing in on us, it's very easy for us to look to our sight and not to our faith. This is the temptation to live by sight. We are constantly threatened with the desire to pursue God's gifts over him himself, aren't we? Again, material creatures are forever tempted to cling to what they can see and feel. 
how we're to, to fulfill those needs and satisfy them without honoring God, with throwing aside his commands, is to betray his authority. You need to live by what you believe is right, not by what you can see, not by what you can feel. The employer who thinks that he needs to, to cut corners and falsify some numbers in order to keep his job, he's living by sight and not by faith. After all, I need a job, right? I, I can't go without a job living by sight. The same is true maybe for the student who has a hard exam. You think, I just need to cheat, just look at one or two answers and I'll be good. I need to pass this, right? Everybody would be glad if I did. Living by sight, not by faith. Trusting what you can see and feel, not God's word. No, live by faith. God knows what we truly need. He knows what we need even better than we know ourselves, even when we are hungry. The next temptation is that of worship, verses five through eight. Let's look down at verse number five. This is Satan and he, he led him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I will give it to whomever whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You may similarly experience the temptation to break allegiance with God and serve another master. Now, it's not entirely clear how Satan takes him up to see all the kingdoms of the world. You may have read that phrase. Perhaps this is a supernatural vision. We don't know. We don't necessarily need to know. The details are are just as clear as God intended. But Satan did take up Jesus and he offered him the world. He offered to give him everything if he would forget the cross and bow to him there. This would deny God's purposes for a future authority. Again, Jesus hearkens back to Deuteronomy. Now chapter 6, verse 13. Man was made to worship God and God alone. We know this, Pastor Greg has been thorough about this, but worship to God has the idea of a response, a response of admiration, something that comes from our hearts. But true worship leads to service. That's what verse number eight says. You shall worship the Lord God and serve him only. For Christ to deny God's authority would be to exalt a completely different Lord, to bow to somebody else besides God. You'll notice Satan was actually attacking the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's found also in Deuteronomy 6, verses uh, 5 and 14, by the way. Jesus would later say in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is where all of Christianity begins, with a true devotion to God from the heart. Love and worship of God is at the very center of what it is to be a Christian. And yet, love for God and the creeping up of other loves that that might threaten that, that's exactly where we're tempted to go astray. We seek to love other things. Our hearts are captivated by shallow, secondary loves. Devotion to God must be, by definition, exclusive. Let me try to illustrate this to you. The marriage relationship, think about that. For those of you that are married, perfect. For those of you that aren't, just bear with us, okay? It's not that your love for your spouse is greater than all your other loves. It's that your love for your spouse is one of a kind. There's nobody like that. It's, it must be exclusive for it to mean anything. If it's just one of many, then you're in trouble. That doesn't count as marriage. For this type of love to be real, it must be exclusive. Otherwise, it is not love at all. Well, Satan's final temptation occurs in challenging God to prove his will 
on our account. This is a testing of God. Let's look at verses 9 through 13. Again, Satan led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest at any time you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the sin of presumption. That's what I call it. And I like what Craig Blomberg says. He says, We must not test God's faithfulness to his word by manufacturing situations in which we try to force him to act certain ways. Have you ever been tempted to fall in this regard? Rather than ignoring God's words, you actually leverage them against him, revealing a heart of self-will. No one has the right to bring a challenge to God, testing his power on your behalf. In fact, James chapter 4 tells us of believers who were asking for prayer requests, but they were asking to consume it on their lusts. So they were trying to use God as a type of vending machine to get what they wanted. This is not a heart of worship. This is a heart of presumption. Believers who want to daringly prove their faith may act unwisely. You may have heard of the parable of where there's a flood rising in a certain city and a man crawls up to the very peak of his house trying to escape the waters that are flowing beneath him. He cries to God, God, please rescue me. He's waiting for God to to save him. After a while, a helicopter comes by and offers to rescue him. He says, no, I'm looking to God to save me. And then a life raft floats by and he again turns it away saying, no, I'm looking to God. What is he missing? He's missing the fact that God was sending him avenues of being saved, but he was trying to use God in his own right. Of course, Jesus Christ links his response again to the historical account of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. He will not provoke God's anger by doubting and resenting. In this account, the Israelites actually demanded proof from God. You remember what the proof was? They demanded water out of a rock. That was their demand of God. They put him to the test. But Jesus, in meekness, trusts God, trusts that God's plan is better than his own, even when it was painful. This last temptation is probably the most tricky because it may appear on the surface to be more of a spiritual nature. After all, Satan is quoting Psalm 91, but it still reveals a heart of self-will. This is the self-will which passes judgment on the Lord. But again, Christ is stepping into the shoes of Israel and conquering. He is our hero. So we've investigated both the situation and the temptation. Let's turn to Jesus' victory. This is where it gets really exciting, and I hope you're excited with me. You must respond to Jesus' victory with trust and praise. You must respond to Jesus' victory with trust and praise praise. Christ clearly remained faithful where Israel had failed. Indeed, where all of mankind had failed, where you have failed, and where I have failed countless times. His repeated references to the Old Testament shows that he's Israel's Messiah, somebody who can stand in their place without dipping his allegiance to God. The victory of Christ proves him to be perfect. Listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 5, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How about 1 John 3? You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, for in him him there is no sin. Isaiah 53, a passage we all know pretty well. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet, 
he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This truly is the Son of God. He's victorious in life. He's victorious through temptation. He's victorious all the way to death. So his victory demands our praise. I love the book of Hebrews. I'm sure many of you too. But if you look at chapter 4 and chapter 5, they talk about Christ's own priesthood before God's throne. The interesting thing is, Jesus Christ relates to God as a human priest. In order to sympathize, to relate, and to help us, Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience while he was on earth. Imagine that. The Son of God dipping down to learn obedience. It seems as if the, the incarnation wasn't a mystery enough, but now, how does Jesus' nature learn obedience? That is mind-boggling. Jesus Christ experienced a developing obedience in his ministry before God the Father. But this is what verse number 8 says. I don't know that we always read the verse before that, verse number 7. Let me read it to you actually in the NIV, which is something I rarely do. But I like the rendering here. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Christ's ministry really was filled with tears and cries. I think the emphasis of that verse points us to the cross, where Jesus' agony is accentuated, where his agony is fulfilled. His passion leading to the cross was filled with prayers and fervent cries as we embark on Passion Week. So this is very fitting. We know that Christ's temptation only got stronger. By the time he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the gospel writers tell us that he's begging God with sweat as it, as it were great drops of blood. He's in agony, praying to God, asking for reprieve. But he continues on. He presses to the finish line. And this is all building to the Christ. Jesus Christ goes the distance out of love for his Father. I want to combat a misconception you might be thinking. And I got this illustration from two separate places, one from John Piper and one from Mark Minnick. When you have both of those guys uh, giving an illustration, I, I paid attention. Simply because Christ had a divine and perfect nature did not eliminate the severity of the trial. We may think Jesus' temptation was nothing. He was God. How could he feel the pressure that you and I feel? Well, Think about it this way. Will Marceau, I don't think he's here today, he ran a marathon this, this past weekend. And a marathon is a light term because this was an ultra marathon. He ran for 48 hours with breaks. So if you see Will next week, and I hope we see him, I hope he lives through it, um, you should congratulate it on that, that this is an amazing thing. But think about it this way. The marathoner who drops out of the race at mile 10 doesn't really know the agony of the runner that continues to mile 15 or 20. And how can that runner know, know the agony of the runner that goes all the way to the end, to, the, to mile 26.1, I think it is. Jesus demands our praise because it exceeds our own frailty. He actually experienced temptation to a degree we probably never will. He's victorious where we could never be. We ought to praise the suffering, conquering Savior. So in conclusion, Luke's account of Jesus' temptation, it's pivotal. It's pivotal in understanding how Jesus Christ replaces Old Testament Israel. How he can take your place and how he can take my place. How his faithfulness endured to the end. We observed the divine circumstances that reshaped the history of Israel. How these three tests worked in Jesus' life. And finally, we rejoiced in his firm, unwavering conquest of sin. He was faithful to the end. And he was faithful on your behalf. 
I think because of all of these demonstrations, we ought to, to praise him and thank him. And as we prepare for Passion Week and get ready for Easter Sunday, I want us to take a minute and consider Jesus Christ's faithfulness to us. Faithfulness through sin and temptation to a degree we will never know. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's the lamb who takes away my sin and your sin. Let's bow for just a minute.